Oh, Joseph died being a hundred and ten years old. And they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. May the Holy Spirit bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I'm sure you must have noticed already that the book of Genesis begins with a, with a creation and it ends with a coffin. It begins with the vastness of eternity and it ends with the shortness of time. It begins with a living God and ends with a dead man. It begins with a blaze of brightness in heaven and ends with a box of bones in Egypt. Something, obviously, has gone wrong. By one man, sin entered and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, in that all have sinned. In the beginning, God. You'll notice, of course, that the Holy Spirit, in writing the book of Genesis, makes absolutely no attempt whatsoever to demonstrate and prove that there is a God. Like the writers of the American Declaration of Independence, the Holy Spirit deems that there are certain truths which are self-evident. And the most self-evident truth in the universe is the truth that God is. The great work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into the presence of God and keep us there. That's what he does all the way down through this first chapter of the book of Genesis. God is mentioned by name 32 times, by personal pronoun another 11 times, 43 times in 31 verses. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into the presence of God and then keep us there. Now this wonderful book that opens the Divine Library divides into two parts. In the first 11 chapters we have what we could call primeval history, the beginnings of the human race. The second part of the book we have what we could call patriarchal history, the beginnings of the Hebrew race. In order to give us the primeval history, the beginnings of the human race, the Holy Spirit sets before us four great movements. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. In order to give us the patriarchal history, the beginnings of the Hebrew race, the Holy Spirit sets before us four great men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that's the book of Genesis. Those are the main interstates, if you like, the main arterial highways that take you from verse 1 of chapter 1 right down to that old box of bones in Egypt. In the beginning, God created. First great movement in primeval history. Now, if you can't believe what God says in Genesis chapter 1, how can you believe what God says in John 3.16? If the Holy Spirit could make a mistake in telling us about creation, how do we know he doesn't make a mistake telling us about redemption? I'm very thankful when I stop to think about it that Moses does not write into the book of Genesis the silly nonsense he was taught at school. He was given the finest education of the land of Egypt, adopted into the Egyptian royal family, 
by one of the most powerful women in the history of the Egyptian empire, adopted into her family, sent off to school, groomed to be a king, or to live and reign in the company of kings. And he was learned, says the apostle, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And we know what they taught him in school. In the beginning, they said, was an ocean. On the ocean appeared an egg. From the egg emerged the sun god. The sun god had some children. From the squabbles and disagreements of the children of the sun god emerged the cosmos. Now, I'm so thankful that Moses didn't write that kind of stuff into the Bible. I mean, he could have said, that is uh, what old Professor Wagtan uh, told me. I must be right. I mean, he's got 25 degrees after his name. Can't even spell his name. I'm glad Moses didn't say, in the beginning was an ocean, on the ocean appeared an egg, from the egg emerged the sun god. You get about that far, close the book and say, well, that's a lot of silly nonsense. He didn't write that. In the beginning, he said, God created the heaven and the earth. Peter Stoner, a mathematician, once read uh, the, the opening chapter of the book of Genesis to see by what uh, process Moses could have arrived at the conclusions that he writes into Genesis chapter 1. He came to the conclusion that there were 13 separate steps in the order of creation and they were put into the Bible by the the author of the Bible, in an exact, proper order. Thirteen steps in the right order. Being a mathematician, uh, he applied the law of compound probabilities to that and decided mathematically that in order to put these various steps of creation in their right order and to properly name them, to guess that, he would have to, uh, one chance in 31 septillion, now, that doesn't mean much to most people. It doesn't mean much to me, as a matter of fact. But um, it looks very nice on the page. <laughs> one chance in 31 septillion. That's 31 followed by 21 zeros. Now, Peter, Peter Stone, the mathematician, had, uh, of course, figured out that we wouldn't be impressed by a figure like that because we don't understand those kind of astronomical <laughs> figures. So he gave us an illustration. He said, supposing you were going to have a, a, a sweepstake and you were going to have to have 31 septillion tickets. Well, you'd have to print them first. And in order to print 31 septillion tickets, you would need 8 million printing presses producing 2,000 tickets a minute, night and day, running without stopping for 5 million years. Now you've got your tickets. And, and one, one of them's got an X on it. And your chance of getting the one X with the X on it, same chance Moses had of guessing Genesis chapter 1. What he wrote into Genesis chapter 1 was not derived by a pro process of reasoning. It was derived by a process of revelation. That's the first great movement in prime medieval history. The story of creation. Then came the story of the fall. Three chapters in from the very first page of your Bible you meet the old serpent for the first time. Three chapters in from the very last verse of the book of Revelation you meet the old serpent for the last time. 
And in between is the sad story of the human race on planet Earth. Satan invaded our planet from outer space. By one man, sin entered. He got, he got our first parents and he decided that he was going to destroy them. Motivated by malice and a hatred for the human race that beggars description. His strategy was very simple. Plant a doubt. Follow that doubt up with a denial. And then follow the denial up with a delusion. A doubt, yea, hath God said. A denial, thou shalt not surely die. A delusion, thou shalt be as God. Now what Satan did, he, he got the woman by herself. When God created man and then created woman, uh, he made us to be different in more ways than one. A man is made to be ruled by his head. A woman is made to be ruled by her heart. Now that doesn't mean to say that a woman can't think. We've all met some women who can outthink some men. And we've all met some men who can feel things far more deeply than some women. But it does mean that man as man is ruled from his head and woman as woman is ruled from her heart. Satan knew that, so he twisted God's order. He got the woman by herself and engaged her in an intellectual discussion as to whether it was right for her to do something that God had said was wrong. And the Spirit of God says that she was deceived. He says Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. You know, she had one weapon. It didn't look like a fair contest on the surface. Here is this brilliant creature who, when he came fresh from the hands of God, was known as Lucifer, the son of the morning, the anointed cherub. First, uh, the, 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 the head of the created universe. When he fell, his name was changed to Satan and to Lucifer, from Lucifer to the devil. And he, he came down here and he, 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 he still retained all the genius that was his from the moment of his creation. All bent and warped and twisted now and driven by a malice and a hatred of the human race that we cannot ever even conceive, let alone dis dis describe. But you say, well, it wasn't fair. Look, here's this brilliant creature from outer space, and here's this woman, in all her innocence, knows nothing. How can that be a fair contest? Well, it was, you see, because Eve had one weapon that Satan feared and, and detested, and that weapon was the word of God. All she had to do every time the evil one raised a question, she simply have to say, thus saith the Lord. Her Bible wasn't very big. It was only two or three verses, as a matter of fact. But um, it was adequate for the occasion. If she had used that, that short, short, short but sharp and mighty, mighty weapon that God gave her, the word of God, Satan would have turned tail and fled. But he, he got her engaged in conversation and she quotes the Bible to the devil. She quotes the Bible three times and three times she makes a mistake. She, the, the, the Satan said to her, what about, uh, what about this business of eating and not eating various trees in the garden? And she said, uh, we may eat of the trees of the garden. Well, that wasn't what God said. God said, thou mayest freely eat 
She left something out. And then she, he, he said, what about this business of uh, you, the possibility of, of the, there being some kind of penalty for eating that tree? Oh, she said, uh, God has said we mustn't eat it. He said, lest ye die. That's not what God said. God said, thou shalt surely die. And then, uh, not content with that, uh, when, when she was elaborating on the tree of life, uh, to the evil one, he said, God uh, has told us that we mustn't eat it, neither shall ye touch it. Well, God hadn't said that. There was nothing about touching the tree in God's initial arrangement with Adam and Eve. So she had the word of God in her hand, and she misquotes the word of God three times in three sentences. The devil laughed to himself. He said, I've got this silly woman. She can't even quote a Bible properly. And so that's the result when Satan pitched his temptation to Eve's intellect, engaged her in this intellectual discussion, and she was deceived. Later on, the Holy Spirit says that Adam was not deceived. You see, when it came to tempting Adam, Satan was very clever, as he was in tempting the woman. As he had pitched the temptation to Adam to Eve's heart, to Eve's head, now he pitches the temptation to Adam's heart because Satan didn't tempt Adam. He just stepped back into the shadows and let Eve do that. He pitched the temptation to Adam's heart. Adam was not deceived. It was by one man's disobedience that sin entered, not by one man's deception. The woman was deceived, but Adam, Adam deliberately sinned. Sinned against known light and knew better and plunge the whole human race into darkness. That's the second great movement in primeval history. The creation, the fall, then came the floods. Fifteen giant steps down through 1,500 years of human history. We come at last to the days of Noah. When my book on Genesis was published some years ago, it was... It was reviewed in a Christian magazine by the village idiot. <laughs> it was. He didn't like it. He not only didn't like it, he, he, he went to great lengths to make fun of it. And uh, I wrote him a letter. I'm not much good at most things. I can't even change, change a light fixture. If I, you know what happens to me if I have to change a light fixture? I start unscrewing the light bulb, and then it goes, Argh! and then it won't go anywhere anymore. And then the bottom half comes away from the top half. It cost me $50 to change a light bulb. But I can write a letter. So I got, I got a hold of a pen and paper and I wrote that bird a, a letter. I scorched his ears. I took him apart piece by piece. And then I made a mistake. I read it to my wife. And she said, I wouldn't send that if I were you. I didn't see any reason why not. She said, why don't you keep it for a few days and... Uh, if you still feel the same way about it, then send it. Well, that seemed a happy compromise, so I kept it for a couple of weeks, and then I got it out and read it, and it sounded better than ever. And not only that, 
I thought up two or three more paragraphs. <laughs> but anyway, this, this, this uh, so-called uh, intellectual, uh, he had some kind of a degree after his name. I don't know what it was. Couldn't have been worth very much. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, Phillips, he said, evidently has no trouble believing in Noah's Ark. Well, I don't. <laughs> For once he was right. <laughs> do, do you know why I have no trouble in believing in Noah's Ark? Because Jesus believed in it. In Matthew chapter 24, describing the end times which have now arrived, he said that it was, would be as it was, in the days of Noah, where they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark and the flood came and took them all away. Did you notice Noah, the ark and the flood all mentioned in a single sentence by the Lord Jesus Christ as being perfectly reliable and a solid fact of something that happened in the history of this world. Do you know why Jesus believed in the story of the flood and, and the ark and all that? Well, I tell you, he was there when it happened, that's why. All that liberal crowd, they, they don't know what they're talking about. He, I'd rather go by the word of somebody who could say, I was there, wouldn't you? <laughs> Not one of that crowd can say that, but, but we, uh, the one that we follow and trust and love and worship and adore, he was there when it happened. In fact, when Noah finished the ark and, and the second person of the Godhead came down to take a look at it, uh, to make sure it was uh, built according to plan because it was to withstand some of the most terrible storms in history. He, um, he took a look around. He said, all right, come in, Noah, come in. Now, if, if I go to your place and you're out in the yard, you say, go in. If, if you're in the house, you say, come in. See, he was already in there. Yeah. And he said, come on in, Noah, come in. We're going into partnership, you and me. You take charge of the window, I'll take charge of the door. And they did, and, and it, the whole thing held together down through those dreadful storms. And when the, the, the waters of judgment at last rolled away, and uh, the doors were open, he was still there because he says, go on out. Yeah. And so that's why I have no trouble believing in the story of Noah's Ark and the flood, because I know, I know somebody who was there. <laughs> yeah, you do too, don't you, brother? Yeah. Uh, this other crowd don't seem quite sure whether they know that or not. <laughs> And so you have the story of creation, the story of the fall, the story of the flood, and the story of the Tower of Babel. After the flood, it began all over again. Some few centuries later, there emerged uh, a man whose name was Nimrod. The name means the rebel. Uh, he decided in defiance of God who had commanded that the People who had emerged from the ark into a new world that they, as they began to multiply, they should scatter far and wide across the face of the planet and, and populate the whole, the whole globe. It was a desegregation policy initiated on the primeval human race by God himself. God evidently wanted uh, the, the, the various population centers to exhibit difference while exhibiting similarity. There's uh, some wonderful reason we'll be able to ask him about when we get to heaven, when traveling days are done. 
Now when they came out of the ark, God placed into the hands of Noah the sword of the magistrate. And he instituted capital punishment as a crime for murder. He said, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God has never changed his mind about that. You'll find the same principle upheld in in Paul's letter to the Romans, written to the Roman legislative capital of the civilized world. Nimrod took the sword of the magistrate and converted it into the sword of the empire builder. He decided that what the world needed was a one world sovereignty, symbolized by a great city. One world, a one world sanctuary, symbolized by that tower pointing toward heaven. A one-world society, the whole world spoke the same language they thought and spake the same things in, in the same way. They decided, uh, Nimrod decided, he'd go ahead and build a great empire centered in Babylon, the massive new city he was building, and, and the great tower he was, he was putting up to consolidate his empire and have firm control over the, the expanding empire that was his. He was a rebel. Three times he said, let us, let us, let us. And then God says, that's so. Let us, let us go down. And down he came and that was the end of that. The new chapter, new, new paragraph, new, a new beginning altogether. For now we turn from patriarch, from primeval history to patriarchal history, from the beginnings of the human race to the beginnings of the Hebrew race. Four great men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I think Abraham must have been the greatest man that God ever made. We are told in the book of Genesis how God discovered his man. And then how he detached his man. And then how he developed his man. And then how he displayed his man. How God discovered his man. Poor lost pagan, a worshipper of the moon, living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. We uh, call it Iraq these days. But way back in those days, it was the city of Babylon. And uh, God looked down from heaven, saw this man. There was something in his heart. He was not satisfied with worshipping the moon. It made no sense to him. Fancy worshipping a chunk of rock in space. Didn't make much sense to him. And God saw the, the, the strivings of his heart after the knowledge of the truth and appeared to him and made revelation to him and told him that he wanted him to step out by faith, turn his back, upon the old way of life and to go forth looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And I can picture to myself um, Abraham the morning after this bright and glorious revelation. I don't suppose he could sleep a wink all night. I imagine he kept everybody awake telling him about his wonderful, wonderful vision that God had given him. He'd shown him this city which had foundations. And by the way, you have to read all the way to Genesis to Revelation before you find that city that had foundations. And then you discover it's got 12 foundations. And it turns out to be our city. (laughs) 
That's our city. I, if, if, if I can get by with it and sneak some time when nobody's looking, I might do the book of Revelation the way I'm doing the book of Genesis tonight. It, uh, it's, a, it's a great, wonderful study. And so, I, I can imagine Abraham going into the first national bank of Ur the morning after the revelation. And I, I, I know what happened when Abraham came into the bank. When I came out of uh, high school, I went to work as a boy in Britain for a large British bank. And then uh, when I came out of the army some years later, I went to work for a very large Canadian bank. So I know what happens when the richest man in town comes out, comes in, the, the bank manager comes out. And, and I can see the bank manager bowing and scraping and saying to, to Abraham, Good morning, Mr. Abraham, so glad to see you this morning, sir. Come into the office. Uh, would you like some coffee? Girls, coffee for Mr. Abraham. Mr. Abraham. Uh, how's the sheep market doing these days? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'm glad everything's going well. What can we do for you today? Well, says hey, 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 Abraham, as a matter of fact, you can close my account. <laughs> I beg your pardon? What did you say? I said, uh, I said, Mr. Bank Manager, you can close my account. I've got, I've got 12 camels outside there. I've got 318 armed warriors who are in my pay. If anybody would think of getting in my way with this money, I'd start loading it up to my camels. Uh, I'll take it all in cash. And I can see the bank manager, his jaw drops and his, his hair, hair turns grey and he says, you kidding. No, 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 Mr. Mr. Bank manager, I'm not kidding at all. I'm, I'm, I, I want all my money in cold cash loaded onto my camels and the sooner the better because I'm, I'm leaving town. You're leaving town? Yes. Where are you going? Don't know. <laughs> Beg pardon? <laughs> You don't know? No, I don't know. Where, where are you going? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll tell you how it was, Mr. Backman. The other day, uh, two days ago, I met God. You, you, you met God? Yes. Which one? Not, 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 no, 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 not these gods that you, you fellows worship around here. The God, the true living God, the creator of heaven and earth. God most high, that's the one, the one who put the stars in space. That's the God I'm talking about. He, he came down, had a chat with me the other day and told me he wants me to leave town and, and uh, to follow the, the, the leading of the Lord in my life and uh, to live by faith and not by works. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'm starting out and this is my first step to say, draw out all my money out of the bank and, and move on. And uh, I can see the bank manager says to him, well, Mr. Ray, Mr. Mr. Abraham, uh, let's talk sense, shall we? I, I mean, I, you're pulling my leg. You can't possibly mean what you're saying. Uh, I'll tell, 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 tell you what. We, we have corresponding banks all across the Fertile Crescent, all the way from, from, from uh, uh, Babylon to Egypt. And uh, we, we have banks that we're in touch with all the time. Let me just transfer your account. No, he said, I, don't, I want it in cold cash, and I'll take it right now, and the sooner the better. Well, the poor fellow, he bankrupted himself. He got scraped, scraped around the, the smallest corners of the vault, making sure there wasn't a nickel or a dime left behind, and put it in a bag and loaded it on his camel, the last camel, camel just moving out of the bank parking lot when... Well, what do you think they did with their camels when they were... <laughs> they must have done something with them. Why shouldn't it be a parking lot? You've got to watch this crowd. Yeah, 
I can just imagine that poor bank manager going home at the end of the day. He sits up all night. He's trying to compose a letter to the, to, to the head office of the bank to explain how, how come he lost the biggest account in the bank. In fact, the biggest account in Babylon. And he said, dear sir, something like this. Dear sir, I regret to inform you that Abraham of Ur came here the other day and demanded all his money in cold cash. I tried to talk him out of it, but he, he, he's, he's got religious mania. He said, he said uh, that uh, he was going to heaven and had found a way to take it with him. So we have the beginnings of the Hebrew race. God discovered his man, then he detached his man and said, I want you to turn your back upon the old way of life and step out by faith and live a new life altogether, one where every step is taken in harmony with heaven. And I want you to keep looking for that city whose builder and founder is God. And then he said, he not only discovered and detached and developed his man chapter after chapter, about 20 five chapters, 24 or five chapters about uh, how he obeyed God and the things God brought into his life and then finally how God displayed his man. Came a day in Abraham's pilgrimage when God said, now Abraham, you're ready for the big test. I want you as a human father to take your son, your only begotten son, your Isaac, in whom is all your delight. And I want you to go to Mount Moriah and offer him up for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. So, so that people will be able to understand, Abraham, what one day it will mean to me, as a heavenly father, to take my only begotten son, in whom is all my delight, to go to Mount Calvary and offer him up as a sacrifice. For sin. God displayed his man. He said to the angels, as the angels looked down in astonishment at the whole scene, as Abraham raises the knife and God reaches over and pulls it out of his hand. The angels must have watched the whole business. They're, they're interested in these things, you know. Peter tells us that. They're things which the angels desire to look into. This is one of them. And so... That's the first great movement in patriarchal history, the story of Abraham, followed by the story of Isaac. Well, Isaac, he's a, he, he, he doesn't have much space in the book of Genesis. I think there's only one chapter in the whole book of Genesis that's devoted entirely to Isaac. He's overshadowed. He's overshadowed on one side by the giant stature of his father, and he's overshadowed on the other side by the equally giant, equally giant stature of his son. The, uh, the, the story of um, Isaac is either tacked on as an appendix to the story of Abraham or as a preface to the story of Jacob. There's one chapter, this is not the one I was referring to, but it's a chapter all married people ought to read once a week. It's that sad chapter that, where God one day, without being announced, he opened the door into, into Isaac's home and invited the world to come and have a look at what's going on in this home. 
home of a believer, mind you. The home of a man who was son to Abraham, mark you. And as you, you take that chapter apart carefully when you get home, you discover it deals with an unspiritual father, an unsurrendered wife, an unsaved son, and an unscrupulous brother. Now there's a devil's brew for you if you want to, to mix it up and savor it a little bit and make sure that your home is run on better lines than his. Story of Isaac. And then you have the story of Jacob. We all love the story of Jacob. He's my favorite Old Testament Bible character. He's a man of like passions as we are. You have the story of Jacob lying, then Jacob leaving, then Jacob listening, then Jacob loving, then Jacob learning, then Jacob loathing, and then Jacob limping, and finally Jacob leaning. How about that? Now, that'll keep you out of mischief for a little bit of time. I bet you any money you like. Uh, well, I can't say that in the pulpit, but uh, Mr. Tapeman, cross that out. <laughs> I would not be surprised that your preacher doesn't start a series pretty soon upon the story of Jacob. I just gave him his outline. <laughs> So when he starts pompously broadcasting his outline, you say, yeah, but we know where you got that from. <laughs> Primeval history, now patriarchal history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, that's a strange thing. It should stop us dead in our tracks. Why Joseph, of all people? When the Son of the Living God stepped off the throne of the universe, came out of eternity into time down to planet Earth, out of the ivory palaces into a world of sin, when he came, he didn't come to be born of the family of Joseph, but of the family of Judah. So why does the Holy Spirit not put Judah here. We, writing the book of Genesis, would have had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Since the, the Messiah came through the line of Judah, why, why put Joseph in here? Well, you see, while Joseph was not in the Messianic line, he was most certainly in, the, in Messianic likeness. He's the most Christ-like man in the entire Bible. In fact, you can't find a flaw in his life he was the father's well beloved son in whom he was well pleased he was the altogether lovely one firstborn among many brethren Rachel's firstborn he could say I do always those things that please the father his kinsmen according to the flesh the children of Israel hated him and couldn't speak peaceably to him they hated him for the life that he lived, and they hated him for the truth that he told. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They conspired against him. They sold him for the price of a slave. Rejected by the children of Israel, he was handed over to the Gentiles. Then he was falsely accused. They put him in the place of death and made him suffer for sins not his own. But it wasn't long before he had the keys of that place. And he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty. There's one incident that is recorded in connection with 
with uh, Joseph at this particular period in his life where the chief butler came to him and said to him, Sir, I had a dream and it bothered me. I wonder if you'd listen to it for me. And he did and he, he told him how that in his dream he had taken the, the, group, the, the fruit of the, the vine, the grape, and he had poured out the fruit, the, 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 the rich red ruby blood of the vine and he had carried it into the presence of him that sits upon the throne. And Joseph said, I tell you what that means, young sir. That means that because you presented to him who sits upon the throne the outpoured blood of the vine, that means that you're going to be set free from this place. This place can't hold you. You, you don't belong here. You're going to be set free. And then the chief baker had a, had a dream and he came and told his dream to Joseph and his, his dream was along the same line. He said, I made some, some pastries for Pharaoh. I'm very good at it, the best, best that I could do and I was an expert at it. I, I made a beautiful tray of these very, very desirable confections and I... And, and I I, I thought a great deal of them. I placed them on my head in the tray. I, I wanted everybody to see the works of my hands. And I, I took, it, took, took them into the presence of him that sits upon the throne. But when I got there, there was nothing there. Nothing there. Nothing. Oh, it says, Joseph, I've got some bad news for you, my friend. Because you thought that you could enter the presence of him that sits upon the throne and present to him the works of your own hands. For you there is a second death, worse than this one. And then he, the, the, that place couldn't hold Joseph. He came forth and he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty and they gave him a name that was above every name that at the name of Zaphnath Paenea, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that he was Lord to the glory of him who sat upon the throne. And then it says, his brethren came to him, and he began to deal with his brethren, his kinsmen, the children of Israel, began to deal with them concerning their rejection of him many years ago, in which they had persisted for so many years. And he dealt with them. And they said, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. And he revealed himself to them at last. Blindness in partners, uh, part, says Paul, has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so thus he dealt with nations. And all, it says, all nations came to Joseph. And if that wasn't enough, before he went back home to heaven, he said to his brothers, don't you bury me in Egypt. You bury me in Canaan. As a matter of fact, he said, you take my bones with you. I want you to pick them up and carry them hence. All that wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan, they had, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, it says. They didn't know the value of those bones. He did. That box of bones, it was a memorial body. And Moses was reminded constantly by his proximity to that memorial body. 
keeping in step with that. He was aware all the time those bones were whispering, God has brought you out. God will bring you through. God will bring you in. It left them with a memorial body. One last look at Joseph. What a strange fact it is. 25% of the book of Genesis written about a man who wasn't even in the messianic line. 25%, a full quarter of the most important book ever written. God dismisses the creation of all the stars of space in five words. He made the stars also. Five words to describe the creation of a hundred billion galaxies. 25% of Genesis to tell you about a man who was just like Jesus. Evidently, God is more interested in making saints than he is in making stars.